So there's a big question which <coughs> is going to lead us the whole way through Sefer Shoftim. I'm not going to answer it yet, I'm just going to raise the points. And then as we go to the Sefer, we'll see different aspects of this principle. And that is, we know that before he died, Moshe Rabbeinu davens to Hashem. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, Yifkoid Hashem elakeh ruches tachol basar isha la'eda. Moshe davens, before he dies, HaKadosh Baruch should appoint somebody to be a leader of Ka Yisrael. And the reason for that, There shouldn't be a situation where Ka Yisrael is left leaderless, or left with, like sheep without a shepherd. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu agrees that there will be, he won't leave Ka Yisrael, so to speak, abandoned. There will always be a leader. And like we know the principle, that whenever the one leader of Ka Yisrael is taken away, there's always a replacement. Ka Yisrael never left on their own. And the big question on that principle is Sefer Shaftim. Because we're going to see that for a majority of Sefer Shaftim, what it seems is that Klai Yisrael were left leaderless. Uh, there were various situations where, in terms of crises or war, whatever it was, that somebody got up to act as the leader de facto for that period. <laughs> but we don't find the steady transmission of leadership from door to door. And uh, the Navi itself points out a number of times in Sefer Shaftim, that there was no leader, there was no king. And as a result of that, the fabric of Jewish society kind of unraveled. Now, if you're going to see, the first, both the Achtus of Klai Yisrael as one entity and Klai Yisrael's uh, spiritual standing both seem to fall apart in Sefer Shaftim. So you have to ask the question, how could that be? How could it be after the glorious reign of Yahshua and Moshe Rabbeinu where there was a leader and the leader was respected and he held Israel to a very high standard, suddenly they plunged into an abyss, so to speak, of, of lack of leadership. That's going to be the general question which we're going to address the whole way through Sefer Shoftim. Okay, so that's the, that's the first point. The second point is that we, we spoke about once before how the Rambam explains the transmission of Torah, that there's always a, a hemshech, so to speak, and the Torah which is given ish ish, generation after generation, from Moshe Rabbeinu until today. There was an unbroken chain of tradition of Moshe We see through the period of the Shaftim, the Rambam doesn't list the Shaftim, at least most of them, as being links in the chain of the Moshe So the Torah leadership at the time was different to the political or the country's leadership, the military leadership, which is what the Shoftim most, for the most part, were. Now we're going to see. Um, whether it was Gidon, we're going to learn about Shamgar, Ehud, Shimshon, Eilaz Voloni, all the other Shoftim, most of them, weren't necessarily the leaders in the spiritual sense that Yiftach Hashem weren't the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. So we have to also explain how there was that schism. Whereas we, have, we had the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the time of Yeshua, Yeshua, that the spiritual leader was also the leader of the people. And Bashmul goes back to that again. What happened in the period of Shaftim when there was that separation between the spiritual leadership, if you want to call it that, the Nevim, or the Rosh Sanhedrin, or the Kohen Gadol on the one side, and the leaders of who were political military leaders who were the Shaftim on the other side. The other Shaftim doesn't mean judges. Shaftim means judges. So 
But not not every not every judge was a shayfet in the sense that he was such a shayfet We will see. Some yes, yeah, some not. Not every shayfet was a tzaddik even. We have people like every man we're going to talk about who not, not weren't necessarily tzaddik. Now that's the next point. Now the other question is, and this is uh, maybe also indicative of what's the difference between the shayfet and the melech. A melech is a king, a shepherd was a judge, if you want, he's a leader, but he wasn't a king. He didn't have the rights of the king, he didn't ma'achid kal Yisrael like a king is meant to do. Right? And that's an important point. A king is a king of the entire Jewish people. Kal Yisrael collectively have to choose a king, and he becomes a king over the whole nation. A lot of the shepherdim, their influence wasn't felt by all the shepherdim. It's interesting. A lot of the Shavtim were specifically over the Shavtim where they had influence on or where they were active in. Not necessarily was it a, a leadership over the Jewish people as a whole. Right. So that, those are the, the, the fundamental, so to speak, differences between what was in the time of Yeshua and what happens now in the time of the Shavtim. Like I said, it needs explanation. We raise the questions. But we can't answer one go. As we go through the Sefer, we're going to see stage by stage why it happened like that. Okay, so then that, with that introduction, let's start the Sefer. After Yeshua died, Klai Yisrael ask Hashem. How did Klai Yisrael ask Hashem? They ask the Urim Batamim. Right, we always have the Eitzah, that if something is a question which affects the whole Jewish people, so that they can ask the Urim Batamim. <coughs> and the Kohen God at the time was, at this stage was still Pinchas, and he would be the one to ask on their behalf. Who, would be the first, who should be the first one to fight the Knani? Now, the first interesting point is, we don't find, and the Chazal point this out, we don't find Yehoshua ever needing to ask the Urim Vitamin. Right? He never did. The only time that the Urim Vitamin came into play in Sefer Yehoshua was to corroborate the Goro. When he separated the Eretz Yisrael into its various portions and he gave one to each of it, so the Urim Vitamin was used, so to speak, to confirm everything Yehoshua said. Was used as a backup. But we don't. Mashrav, is it told? Yes, that's what Chazal is saying. And that Chazal say that even though Yeshua uh, was given the option of being Omid if Nelazar to ask Urim Vitzumim, the Maisim Yimunan finally ever did. And the reason for that was simple Yeshua was a Navi. He could ask directly. Right? So in the Chanami, there was the option of asking Urim Vitzumim, but Yeshua never, we don't finally ever did do that. He was not in his own right. And when he needed something, he asked Hashem straight. For example, after the fall of Ai, for, as this is one example, and Yeshua didn't know why Klayashim lost the battles, he didn't go to the Rimbutamim. He went to Hashem directly, and Hashem responded to him. So there was the option of Rimbutamim, and Navi didn't necessarily need to go that route. But after Yeshua was left, Klayashim didn't have another Navi right now. Pinchas was a Navi, but he was a coin Gadol, and therefore the way he asked was via the Rimbutamim. And therefore, the, here we find that Klayashim asked Derech the Rimbutamim, and uh, who should be the first one to fight? Now, why, would, why does this make a difference? So the first point which is important now is, this is the first point we spoke about, and we see this right away at the beginning of the Sefer. Klai Yishol were no longer fighting as one collective army. It wasn't the Jewish army going to war. Every Shevet had already been taken as an Achila, and that was an individual fight of that Shevet against the pockets of resistance of Aknanim, which still lived within that Shevet. So it wasn't that everybody came together to fight, it was each Shevet individually fighting its... Uh, Local, so to speak, uh, dissidents, local clanim, which was still there. And if that's the case, why does it make a difference who was first? Why does it make a difference, uh, why does it make a difference who the first one was? 
So this is important. The Mephoshim all pointed out the same thing, and that is, Klaus were very worried because um, there was a certain element of fear that the Klaus had because of the Jin, and understandably, Klaus had destroyed the vast majority of the Klaus and taken over the land and killed all the 31 kings, but they were scared that the Klaus had attributed that to Yeshua's leadership. And now that Yeshua died, so now the Klaus thought, okay, you know, now we can fight back. So to speak, they've lost their leader, so we don't have we don't have to be that afraid of them anymore. And if that's the case, what would make a very big difference was the first campaign after Yeshua died, what was going to happen. Because if Taishal would lose that campaign, then it would just bolster the morale of the Knanim that you see we 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 no longer have to fear these Jews, we we can now fight back. Whereas if the first campaign would be very successful, so then it would give the impression that it has nothing to do with Yeshua being there or not being there. Right, the mass of the, the fact that Clyde shall victorious or have divine assistance, whatever it's going to be, would remain. And therefore they ask the question, who's going to go first? Mi'ale Tchila, who should be the first one to fight? Hashem, you heard the Yale. And Hashem says two things. You heard the lie, you heard the Yale, you should be the first one to fight. He named the Santis Aris I've given the land into his hand, which means he's going to he's going to be successful also. Now this is a little bit interesting because this goes against the rules. As we know, the Gemara tells us that the rule of the Urim Vitzumim is that it only answers one question. Right? And therefore, if they ask the question, who's going to go first, the answer would be, who is going to go first? You see here that the Urim Vitzumim asks the second point, and that is, Nesatis Aris Fiyadah, which isn't the way the Urim Vitzumim normally worked. On the contrary, we're going to find in the future when they ask the Urim Vitzumim, and they wanted to know two points, like, for example, David Melech, much later on in Nach, asked the Urim Vitzumim, shall I go and fight? And the Fishtim, will I be successful? So it was two questions, and the Urim answered each one. Should you go fight the Christian, go fight. Will be successful? You'll be successful. Uh, it, it needed two questions to be asked, and the Urim answers each question in turn. Masha Enken over here, we find that the question was just, who should be the first one to fight the Knani? And the Urim answer is two points. You should be first, and I've given him the let. So you have to answer, why do we find that uh, the Urim added more, so to speak, than just answering the question that was being asked? We'll discuss this by the Shimon in a few seconds time. Ayame Yehuda le Shimon Achiv. So Yehuda says to Shimon, and the Pashtis of the Torah. Did the Rav answer the question already? If the question was me, I want to heal it because they might have. Yeah, that's what I'm going to get to. I want to explain it in a few seconds time when you see how this plays out. Right. Ayame Yehuda le Shimon Achiv. Yehuda says to Shimon, his brother, the Pashtis is talking about Shevet Yehuda and Shevet Shimon. Shevet Shimon, as we know, didn't get their own Achila. Shevet Shimon's Nachla was incorporated in the land of Yehuda, and if that's the case, they were the natural nearest, so to speak, ally, because the, the, the Knanim in their midst was in both of their midst. So Yehuda tells Shevet Shimon, Come with me and fight with the Knanim, which are in my portion, and then I'll fight against the Knanim, which are in your portion. So Shimon goes with Yehuda. Now the question to ask you is, was this necessary or not? Once Hashem told told them, you heard the Yahya, you'll be successful, was it necessary for him to bring Shimon into the picture? Right, so that's a, that's a question. Why do you need to do that? The Gemara in Tzmura has another explanation of this Pasuk. The Gemara in Tzmura does this Vav says, that it's not talking about Shevet Yehuda and Shevet Shimon, it's talking about a person called Yehuda, one individual. Uh, Yehuda was another name for Yavitz, which is a very interesting story, which the Nacht doesn't even tell us about, uh, the story of Yavitz. But uh, it's discussed in Debra Yavitz, not over here. And uh, we're talking about Yavitz over here. He was the one who went to fight. 
And Shimon Achiv was his brother. It wasn't another shepherd, it was another person. So it was two, basically a two-man army. Yavitz, Yehuda, Yavitz, his name was Yehuda, and Shimon, and they went to <coughs> That's why the Gemara explains it in in Tamura. The Pashas that I'm showing him here is he's talking about Shevet and Shevet Shimon, and they went to two Shvatim to fight. And Vayal Yehuda, Vayitim Hashem, Mishachnani, Vaprizim Biyodam. They went to fight the Knanim and the Prism who remained in the Yanachala, and they fought, the Hashem made them successful. Vayakum, Bezek, Bezek's name of the place. So they were successful, they were victorious in this place called Bezek. Aseris Alofimish, they, they struck down 10,000 Knani soldiers, which was quite a significant victory. Now, the city Bezek was still held by the Knani, so after defeating the army, they tried to take the city. And then when they went into Bezek, they found that there was a second force there. In other words, as opposed to the, we saw previously, the whole army used to go out, out to fight, and therefore once they defeated the army, the city was left defenseless. Over here, it didn't work like that. They were the first, well, the first army went out to fight, and when they came to the city, the Melbourne explains, now they found that Doni Bezek, as who was the mayor or the lord or whatever it is of this place called Bezek, he had remained behind the second force to protect the city. Now, why would they do that? So here we already see, again, the same idea. The Kanani was scared. Right? There had, they had been previous times when they'd all gone out to fight and they'd lost and then the city was left vulnerable. Uh, yeah, Adani Bezek was scared of the Jewish army, so therefore he didn't necessarily send everyone out to fight and leave the city open. But he kept the second force behind that even if the, so to speak, attacking army would lose, they would have, he had a defense in the city to protect them. And therefore, Vayilachim would have to fight a second time against Adani Bezek inside Bezek. And they killed the rest of the Kanani pretty soldiers inside the city. Here it doesn't give us a number how many there were. That was the second part of the campaign. Adoni Bezek, the lord of the city, he runs away. He tries to escape. They chase him. They caught him. They capture him. They cut off the, his thumbs or his, and his big toes. Why would they do that? This is also not the, the Melbourne point out here. It's not the Derek of Taishal to torture people. So if they want to kill him like everybody else, kill him. What is the idea of, so to speak, mutilating him? So that's interesting. We could look at the next pasuk. Adoni Bezek. Adoni Bezek says, Shivim melachim. There were seventy kings, which behindusidem ragleim mukutzatim. They had their thumbs and their toes chopped off by him. They used to gather food under my table. In other words, he used to feed them. Kasher ostisi kain And what I did, that's how Hashem has paid me back because the same thing happened to him. Vayeviu Yerushalayim vayamasham. They brought him to Shalayim and he died there. So now, what's the story of Adoni Bezek, and what's the story of Adoni Bezek, and why, why is, it, is this the way they treated him? So the first question we really have to ask is, the first question we have to ask is, who was Adoni Bezek? It's an interesting thing. We know that there were 31 kings of Canaan. Each king was a king over a city state, <coughs> right? So it wasn't that there were 31 countries in Canaan. There were 31 cities. There was the king of Yericha, the king of Yishalayim, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmus, and the king of all the other cities that there were. So a city had its own king. Each, each state was in, city was independent, so to speak, a monarchy. If that's the case, why wasn't Adani Bezek one of the kings? We don't find he was the king. He was a leader of a city. He was in charge of the city. He wasn't the king. Why not? And that's why Yeshua, when he killed all the kings of Canaan, he left Adani Bezek alone. It wasn't part of the campaign against the kings. He wasn't called one of the Shlesh Shemar Achat Malachi Knan. 
So this is actually very, very appropriate. We spoke about before about Sefer Shaftim because this is exactly the Nukut. When Yeshua, who was, so to speak, the Jewish leader, the king, fought against all the kings of Canaan, and he was victorious against the king of Canaan, and he, therefore he had destroyed all the kingdoms of Canaan, that was Yeshua's job. Adoni Bezek wasn't a king. Adoni Bezek was a warlord, which means he had a strong army. He was uh, he used to go and fight and capture whatever it was, but he didn't. He was like it was a city of mercenaries, if you want to call it that. It was like an, he was in charge of an army. It wasn't that he was a king of a, of a place like the others were kings. And uh, therefore, what he did in order to show his power was in, instead of uh, whenever he conquered somebody else. He would keep them as a, as a, so to speak, as a vassal, as a hostage, as a servant, whatever it would be. Which is why he said there were 70 kings who would gather bread under my table. He had no union to kill them. He wanted other of that gave him more authority. Right? He wanted to show how powerful he was as a general. So no matter how many people, how many other armies he had conquered, but how many kings he had taken hostage. Right? The idea, the reason why he cut off their, their thumbs and... Uh, that, uh, the person don't talk, and the, the person don't explain so much the idea of their toes, but the idea of their thumbs at least was it would render them less of a threat to him, because to hold a weapon, the person needs his thumb to to hold something. It's like an opposing to the other side. Where if a person doesn't have a thumb, he, he can't uh, hold or wield a sword or whatever it's going to be, so he wouldn't be a, there wouldn't be a threat to him. So that was the idea of why he did that. That way he had subjugated them and they would stay subjugated. He wasn't scared of them attacking him. Now. The, what, what did the Kleistral do to him? They did exactly the same thing. What was the point of that? So, now the first point out, normally, the way that they dealt with the Goyish kings, whenever they captured the kings, was to kill them, which is what they did. Dafki here, it was to show that uh, they had overpowered him, so to speak. Exactly what he used to do to everybody, he used to, was successful against, they did the same thing to him. It was known that he did it? Like this was a Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not uh, a, a simple, a, a similar example to Tanakh, the same idea, is when Shur, much later on in Nakh, again, Shmuel, when Shmuel wants to kill the king of, of Amalek, Agag. Right? So it is an interesting notion. It says, Vayeshasef, Shmuel is Agag. Vayeshasef basically means he cut him to pieces. Just kill him. Why was that the necessary thing to do? So Shmuel says to him why he's doing it. He says, I'm doing it to you and you to other people. That's right? And if that's the case, the, the, the same idea we see there, we see here also. There wasn't just an Indian to necessarily kill an enemy, but there was a certain also, especially when there was a point to it. Right? Adoni Bezek, like we saw, was trying to show he was a more powerful warlord by the amount of kings that he had subjugated by cutting off their fingers, and therefore that doing that to him was exactly the same to show that it's abdicated him. It says, why do they bring him to Yishalayim? So it's an interesting thing. He, he, they, he, they didn't try to kill him. He died on his own. Why do they bring him to Yishalayim? So all the Mephoshim point out, because that was the next place they went to fight against. So the army, when they moved from Bezek towards Yishalayim, they just dragged him with him. And what was the point of doing that? And this is the second reason which we spoke of before. It was meant to be an example to everybody else. We see Adoni Bezek was a powerful general. If he had managed to subjugate 70 kings, he was a very powerful general. Kaisha thought, this is our best example, this is the best way to frighten everybody else. If we show them that we've conquered Adoni Bezek, then it's going to have a, a ripple effect on all the other kingdoms, which is why they didn't want to kill him. They wanted to bring him with to show that, like, look how successful we were in this campaign, it would scare the other Kanaanim also. 
So that's why it says he didn't, they didn't kill him. They, they, they brought him in that position of being subjugated to Yerushalayim. They might say he died in the battle against Yerushalayim, but the idea was to make everyone else afraid. And here we go back to what we said before. This was because this was, again, what Klaishul were worried about. That the Kanani wouldn't be afraid of them anymore because Yeshua was no longer there. And therefore, now they had conquered Adani Bezak, they would use him as the symbol to show that you know, we're still a formidable force and would frighten now the Kananim as well. That was, the, that was the idea of what they were trying to do. Um, this goes back to what I said before. The Ma'isa, Klaishul didn't need it. Now, if you're going to see in the Hamshach position tomorrow, there were much bigger wars they fought and much stronger, against much stronger opponents than Adani Bezak, and they were successful. Right, that goes back to the Aftar Hashem gave them at the beginning. We said, Hashem said, no, Sites are its beyond. That Hashem told him, Go fight, I've given, the, I've given the land to you, which means you're going to be successful in the campaign. Uh, why did Hashem need to add that land? We asked before. I read the, the only question was, Who's meant to fight first? And the answer was, that the, like we said, the idea wasn't just who's going to fight first, the idea was because he has to be successful. If the idea is to keep that deterrent and to keep the Kanani afraid, so who's going to fight first? That will be successful. So Hashem's answer is answering the question they asked. The, the question is who's going to be successful? Yehuda's going to be successful. And matter, he should be the one to fight first. And it's important because we're going to see the other Shvatim did try to fight later also. Not all of them were successful. Some of them weren't. And therefore the answer to the question was, out of all of us, who's going to be the most successful to deal with the Knaim in their midst? And the answer was Yehuda's going to be the one who's successful. Mimele, he should be the one to fight first. So that was the answer to the question. That's why... Yehuda's campaign was first. Why was Yehuda more successful than the other Shvatim were? As we'll see later on, Be'ez Hashem, when we talk about the other Shvatim. At the same time, we'll talk about the identity of Yehuda's, like we spoke about, the person who was the leader of this campaign, who, interestingly enough, the Apostle doesn't tell us about it at all, but we'll see what Deva Yom has to say about it.